We start a new series this morning. Uh, let's just go ahead and move right along. Worship and wisdom is what we're gonna be taking a look at for the next couple of months here at Redeemer. Uh, we're looking at the books of Psalms and Proverbs, bouncing back and forth between those two over the course of the next several weeks uh, together. So if you got a Bible, turn to Psalm 63 is where we're gonna start off this morning together. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen for you as we read it together. Uh, but if you've got one, go ahead and turn there because I'll keep pointing you back to it as we work our way through it together this morning. Psalm 63 beginning in verse one, David says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars shall be stopped. Now, one of the things here at Redeemer that I hope people would find whenever they walk through our doors, there's several things I hope they would find. One would be theological clarity. We believe that doctrinal precision and accuracy is important. But we also believe and hope that they would find a loving community. Not just theological clarity, but a loving community that would come around them and love and serve them. But even beyond that, one of my hopes is that as people come through these doors, not only would they find that theological clarity and a loving community, but they would find a relationship with the living God with a living God who is not dead, who is not closed off, but who is still active, who is still working, who is still involved in the realities of life and the life of all those whom he has formed in his image, right? Because we want to be theologically correct and accurate. We want to be a community that loves and serves others and moves towards them in their needs. But if the only reason that we're here is because we're checking off boxes on a doctrinal list and saying I would affirm and agree with these things, or if we're here just because we like the people that we get to hang out with on Sundays and Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, but there is no real vital relationship and connection to the living God, then something is missing. Something is missing. And so what, what I, what, what I, what I've, as I've read through Psalm 63, one of the things that jumped off the page to me was this, is there's a difference between good, moral, church-going individuals and those who have real, vital connection to the living God. There's a difference between those two things. And I think oftentimes in modern evangelicalism, in churches that dot our land, the landscape of our nation and even of our community, there are people who show up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and they sit in service after service after service. And they're good, moral, church-going individuals, but they have no real vital relationship with God. They don't know what it is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, to become like him in his death, to one day look forward to attaining resurrection from the dead. They don't know what it is to commune with God. They don't know what it is to have relationship with God. There's a difference between being a good, moral, church-going individual and having a real, vital connection to the living God. 
Listen, some, most of us, and some of us, this is a foreign concept because we've been raised in a culture that just says, hey, you show up at church like every couple of weeks and maybe you drop your kids off for some activities and you enjoy some relationships with people whenever you hang out on Saturday nights or on Sunday evenings. And, and I think many in our culture we have, have embraced a, a view of Christianity that is not fully biblical. It's a view that a, a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones back in the mid-1900s in England talked about when he described the condition of the church that he saw in his day and in his era. And listen to what he says. He says, now we have all heard that a Christian is someone who lives a decent life, who is a good fellow and attends a place of worship now and again. But if you go beyond that and talk about some personal knowledge or experience, you're not only regarded as being in a dangerous condition, but some would even begin to doubt your sanity. The ob- and he goes on to say, the objective, detached, theoretical view of the Christian faith dislikes a personal emphasis and especially a thrilling personal experience. He says religion is that, he's talking about what he sees, religion is that which makes a man decent, but nothing else beyond that, we are told. And if that resonates with you, maybe you've embraced a vision of Christianity that is not fully biblical, because the problem with that view, that it just makes us decent, moral, upstanding citizens of our city, community, and nation, the problem with that view is that all across the Bible, and in particular in the book of Psalms, we see something else. We see people experiencing the living God in real and vital and thrilling ways over and over and over and over again. It shows up in the text and it shows up most frequently, listen, in our lives, in seasons in which we find ourselves in the wilderness. You ever been in the wilderness before? You ever been in the desert before? Right, that's where David finds himself as he writes the words of Psalm 63. If you look at the very beginning of the psalm, before even verse one, and the little, the little subtitle of the psalm, it says, the psalm of David while he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is the wilderness of Judah, okay? Now listen, I want you to think about the context this psalm came out of. David is not on vacation, Okay, he's not. Listen, our family's getting ready to go on a little vacation next week. We're gonna go down to South Texas. And one of the first things my daughter, and it's like, maybe you wonder where I went wrong. But one of the first things my daughter, who's six, she's like, I wonder what kind of TV they're gonna have, right? (laughs) Are they gonna have Wi-Fi so I can connect to my videos, right? So so David's not on vacation, right? He's not relaxing and lounging by the pool. There is no blazing fast internet in the wilderness of Judah. There is no 70-inch flat screen, no infinity saltwater pools where you can just see for miles. There are no little swim-up bars that you can kind of roll up to. They have little drinks with umbrellas sticking in them, right? There are no uh, all-you-can-eat seafood buffets. It's not a resort destination. David is in the desert. He's in the wilderness. It's dry, it's hot, it's barren, and it's lonely. That's where David finds himself as he writes the words of this psalm. But I want you to notice that not only that David is there, but why he is there. Why is he there? 
If you read further down in Psalm 63, listen to what David says in verse nine. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars shall be stopped, David says. David finds himself in the wilderness running for his life. Now there's a couple of occasions that David found himself in the wilderness fleeing for his life. One was after he had been anointed as king, but before he had been installed as king, and Saul's jealousy began to rage against him, so he pursued David to take his life, and David fled to the wilderness of Judah. But that is not this time. This time is more personal. This time is more emotional. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 15, we find the story of David who had already been anointed and installed as king. He's ruling as a king of Israel. And one of his sons named Absalom decides to raise an insurrection and overthrow David. And so Absalom gains ground and gains traction amongst the people and raises up an army to come against his own father. And David flees Jerusalem into the wilderness of Judah and that's where he finds himself as he writes this. So David is not only in a hot, dry, barren desert. David is tasting of the most bitter disloyalty you can possibly imagine. There are emotional hemorrhaging going on in his life because his own flesh and blood has now risen up against him to seek to overthrow him. That's where David finds himself in this moment. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes it is in our wilderness moments, those moments in which things become very barren and they become very desolate, they become very dry and they become very hot and you begin to hemorrhage internally, your heart begins to rend and break. Those are the moments in which you discover whether or not God is an object to be studied or a person to be known. Those are the moments in which you discover whether or not you're kind of quasi-Christian, a good moral, church-going kind of person, or whether or not you have a real, vital relationship with the living God. And what I want to do this morning is show you some evidences of that in this text to help you know whether or not you've always just kind of been a good moral, church-going person, or whether or not you actually know the living God. There's several evidences here and they also lead to some disciplines in our lives. So I wanna talk to you about three of them this morning. And the first one is this, the first evidence in this text of a real relationship with the real God, not an object to be studied, but a person to be known, is this, David, what you see it in David's experience, the first evidence is this, is that there is an appetite for God. An appetite for God. Now you and I experience our appetites in a couple of different ways. One, because of the absence of food and the other because of its presence, don't we? You experience appetite in those two ways, the absence and presence of food. Listen, uh, the the, the absence, a couple of, uh, uh, I wish it was a couple of years ago now. I'm getting old. Uh, But many moons ago now, whenever I was a junior in high school, I, was, uh, I ran cross country in high school. I ran it in college a little bit as well and we were competing uh, down in South Louisiana is where I grew up and so amongst all the swarms of mosquitoes and all the humidity and running in rice fields from alligators, that, that part's not really real where the rice fields are, uh, but we're, we're, we're running a tuna meet that fall and it was like September 
in South Louisiana. The temperatures are still in the 90s. It's in the afternoon, not in the morning, after school. A practice meet with several other schools in our city. And the humidity in South Louisiana, you think it's humid here, show up down there 30 minutes from the Gulf where the temperatures are still in the mid-90s and the humidity is like 130% um, as opposed to 60%. And it's just like you're running in a steam room. And I can remember over the course of that race, as I, as I put one foot in front of the other and I kind of busted my guts out there on the course, I got to the chute at the end and crossed the finish line. And as I crossed the finish line, I could feel my legs just trembling beneath me. You ever been there before where you're just so physically spent that you could just feel your body shaking a little bit, right? And it's not something that you're doing, it's just uncontrollable. Because right, I, I exerted so much effort and energy and my body had been so depleted of its resources, all of the sweat that I'd poured out over the, course of, over the course of that course. And I got to the end and my eyes began to see spots. It's not a good place to be, right? My eyes began to see spots and I began to feel like I was about to pass out. Literally, somebody who was manning the chute had to grab me before I fell to the ground. I, I, I literally nearly fainted. And your body responds that way whenever it's in lack, doesn't it? It begins to shut down and you begin to pass out or faint because you, your, body, your appetites, the things that you naturally need in life, whenever they're removed from you, your body craves and longs for them. Right? You experience appetite in the absence of what you need. And David does as well. Listen to what he says in verse one. In verse one of Psalm 63, David says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, and then he compares it to this, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So David's looking around the landscape and the barrenness and the dryness and the hotness, and he's saying, my soul feels like that. And God, in the midst of what seems to be your absence, there is a fainting for you in my life. There is a hunger and a thirsting for you in my life. There's an appetite for God. And in fact, one of the evidences of the fact that you have a real relationship with the real God is that you recognize when he, he seems to be distant and he seems to be far and he seems to be not able to be found. And your, body, and your soul feels like it's fainting for him. But we also experience appetite on the opposite side, not just fainting, but also feasting, don't we? A couple of weeks ago, we took a little staff and elders retreat out to East Texas, and that Friday evening, I'd asked Duncan to rip up a little meal for us. I don't know if you know this about Duncan. I'm a, I feel like less of a man around him most days uh, because he just does everything so well. Like, the guy can preach. The guy can, uh, like, I, I just love to listen to him pray, um, eat his food. Oh, my gosh. Like, I asked, hey, man, can you fix this, whip us up a little meal that Friday night? So he said, I'm going to do some fish tacos. Well, he went up beyond that because he did chicken too. So he brings fish and chicken and he begins to whip them up on the stove. So he's got, he's got like all these ingredients. I get there, he and Marquila have all this stuff they're chopping up on the counter and they've got all like seven pans on a four burner stove and they've got all this stuff simmering and the oil beginning to pop and they put the fish in and the chicken in. And they got like 17 bowls of like all these little sauces and sides and additives and cilantro and uh, like, like fresh stuff that he's chopping. I don't even know what it is. He just like pureeing it down in a blender and like pouring it over top of stuff. And so I begin to eat these fish tacos and these chicken tacos and it's like my taste buds are singing for joy, right? We ate like kings that night. We feasted. Why? Because food was present. And so we just consumed. And I remember after eating two tacos stuffed 
I mean, they, they, they looked like pillows, right? <laughs> they were so thick. And I remember saying to myself, and I think I even said it out loud, if, if, if gluttony wasn't a sin, I'd be back in the line, right? Because they were so good, because I wanted more and more. My body craved it, because it was so good. That's appetite. You experience it in both fainting and feasting. Notice what David says in verse five of the psalm when he writes these words. He says, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He says, my soul, even though it's in the midst of this barren, desolate place, it will be filled as if I'm sitting down with a, with a feast spread before me, a banquet spread before me. God, because I have an appetite for you. Is that true in your life? Do you have an appetite for God where once before there was none? Whenever, his ab- whenever, whenever you begin to sense his absence, does your, does your soul begin to feel like it's withering and drying and you're fainting for him? And in those occasions when he feels like he is so near that you could touch him, does your soul feast on him? That's one evidence of a real relationship with the living God is that there is now an appetite for him in your life. And the discipline that comes out of that for us is this. I don't know if you remember a number of years ago, Sprite, the, the, the national uh, you know, soft drink company, released its new slogan. It was obey your thirst. I don't know if you remember that, right? And so they had you know, Sprite commercials, everybody, you know, all these celebrities talking about how thirsty they were, like you know, these dudes playing, shooting hoops down on the street, and they're like at the end of the, end of the game, they're not drinking water, man, they're just chugging Sprites, just hammering those things, right? And they would put the Sprite down, and it would be glistening in the sun, and it would be dripping the condensation off the bottom of the bottle, and they would say, obey your thirst, And listen, the discipline that comes out of this appetite for God is this, to obey your thirst, obey your hunger. The problem for many of us is that we tend to fill ourselves on things that are lesser. That's my problem, oftentimes, is we fill our things on things that are less, fill ourselves on things that are lesser. Right, you ever, those of your parents can relate to this real easily, right? Your kids, you're, you're cooking dinner, right? All the, you might have like 17 sauces and all kinds of fresh stuff chopped up. It may just be something you shoved in the oven that you bought at the store. Whatever it is, but you're getting dinner ready and your kid comes to you and says, I'm hungry. Can I have a snack? Right? And they want to go rummage through the pantry to grab a bunch of cookies. And what do you say to them 30 minutes before you're going to sit down at the table? You're going to ruin what? Your appetite, Right? Because when you start filling up on sugar, more and more sugar, more and more sugar, or even just empty hollow calories and potato chips and crackers and snacky type of foods, right? What does it do? It begins to diminish your appetite for the things that can really satisfy you. Listen, if you have a real relationship with the living God, there is an appetite there in your soul for him. And listen, obey it. Yield to it. Don't continue to fill your soul with things that are lesser that will diminish your appetite for him. And we, I gotta move, right? Because we got, we got more to, way more to go. I'd love to expound it further. But the second thing is this. Second piece of evidence of a real vital relationship with the living God is this, is that you have a desire for who he is, not just what he gives, You have a desire for who he is, not just what he gives. Look what David says in verse three. 
Man, this is, this is amazing. I'm, just, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what David says when he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your steadfast love is better than life. You one mark of genuine Christian experience, a relationship with a li- real living God, is that you desire God for who he is, not just all the things that he gives. Is that true in your life? Is it true for you that if you have God, you don't need anything else? Anything else? David says, your steadfast love is better than the highest highs in life. It's better than the lowest lows in life. The fact that I would be loved by God in that way with a faithful, merciful, kind love ever moving toward me, not moving away from me. Even whenever I move away from him, he's still moving towards me, that he's faithful and loyal in his love. Listen, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Taken, right, with Liam Neeson, right? He, he's, he's pretty bad in that movie, all right? Um, so Liam Neeson is this, this father and his daughter says, Dad, I wanna travel with a, with a friend of mine over to, uh, to Europe to go see our favorite band who's on tour over there. And so the, the dad has great hesitations. He's like ex-special forces or something. And I'm not even really sure what he did. He used to hurt people a lot, right? So he's ex-special forces. And so his, his dad says, I have great, he has super hesitations about that. But the mom sees it differently. She wants to empower and release and send the daughter off. And so after they have these conversations about it, they event, he eventually agrees. Like if your friend's parents are gonna be there, you can go, stay with them, don't be alone. Right? He gives her all these warnings. And so she gets on the plane, they fly across the ocean, they land there in France, she gets off the plane, the parents aren't there to pick her up at the airport, so it's just her and her other teenage friend, like late teen friend, who are wandering this airport in Paris by themselves. And these two guys meet them at the airport, offer to take them back to their, home, to their, to their little flat. Right, they just get a ride, and so they take him over to the flat, the guys leave, and so she calls her dad, hey, we're here, we're safe, everything's good, and then all of a sudden she sees through the window over across the courtyard, these men bust through the door and grab her friend, and she begins to panic, and her dad is on the phone with her, talking her through step by step, where to go, what to do, hide under the bed, continue to stay with me on the phone. And so she stays with him on the phone until they grab her feet, rip her out from under the bed, and the, he grabs, the, the, the abductor grabs the phone, and that's where that classic line, right? Like, I'm a man with a very special set of skills comes in, right? <laughs> and I will track you down. And he does, right? That's the best storyline of the movie. She gets sold into the sex slave industry, and he, tra- he follows all the clues, all the leads, tracks him down, right? He's just kind of doing guys wrong all along the way, right? Shaking them down for information, then discarding them. He finally finds his daughter. She's on a boat out in the ocean, uh, and he, he like does this crazy like maneuver, gets on the boat, busts down the door, like shooting guys left and right, right? He busts through the door, finds his daughter, who's there with these other men men in the room goes, tush, tush, right, puts a, puts a bullet in both their heads, you like that sound effects, right, put the bullet in both their heads, and his daughter is there blindfolded, and he runs up, and he, when he runs up to his daughter, he doesn't go, I told you so, what does he do, even when she runs away, he runs toward his daughter, and embraces her, grabs her, and she weeps in his arms, that is steadfast love. That is loyal love. And that is the love that David said. If, I, if I'm loved that way by the God of the universe, I don't need anything else. 
right? Even in the barrenness of childlessness or the blessing of conception, your steadfast love is better than both. Even in the barrenness of joblessness or the blessing of raises and promotions and moving up and to the right, your steadfast love is better than both. Even in the barrenness and loneliness of singleness or the blessing of a wedding day, your steadfast love is better than the highest highs or the lowest lows. See, one of the marks, one of the evidences of a relationship with a living God, not just that God is an object to be studied, but a person to be known and experienced, is this, is that you desire him for who he is, not just what he gives. And one of the disciplines that comes out of that is this, is that you begin to pray prayers of God you are, not just prayers of God I need. God, you are not just I need. Look, if you, if you look at the psalm, it's amazing. It's amazing if you look at David's prayer. I'll grant you this. Elsewhere, he does call upon God to, for deliverance. He does call upon God for provision. He does call upon God for things. But in the midst of this psalm, that's not what David does. The closest that he gets to that in this psalm is at the end when he expresses a rock-solid confidence that God will show up, that God will deliver, that his enemies will be put to shame. But he doesn't ask God to do that. God just, all David does in this psalm is say over and over again with various images and various language, God, if I have you, I have enough. If I have you, I have enough. That's how David prays. So look at your prayer life. Most of us, right, we're very familiar with prayers of God I need, right? Pray them all the time, right? God, I need I need God, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. But if, you're, if you desire God for who he is, not just what he gives, then your prayers begin to shift in that real relationship with a living God, not just a transactional one, not an object to be studied, but a person to be known, and you begin to pray, God, you are. You are. You are. See, if all you ever pray is, God, I need, let me ask you this question. The Bible says there's a day that's coming in which the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ and that his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that there will be no more sickness, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more layoffs, there'll be no more persecution, there'll be no more broken hearts, there'll be no more abandonment, there'll be no more abuse, there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more difficulty, all of that will fade away and God will rule and reign forever and ever in all glory, majesty and beauty. On that day, would you have anything left to say to him if all you've ever done is say I need? When all your needs are gone, will you have anything left to say to him? Only if you, your heart prays, God, you are. You are. When you stand in his presence for all of eternity, you will not be saying, God, I need, God, I need. You'll be saying, God, you are. So why not begin to learn how to pray that way here and now, even in the midst of the desert? Now, some of you are thinking, I don't even know where to start. Let me tell you where to start. Start by praying the Psalms. Start by praying the Psalms. Look, take, take for instance, Psalm 96, Psalm 96, 
which says this, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now if you take Psalm 96, which are making declarations about God, and you turn that into praying you are kinds of prayers, here's what it begins to look like. You begin to say things to God, not like God I need, but you begin to say God, you are, your works are marvelous among all the peoples. God, when I take into account everything that you're doing across the globe, as you're drawing people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, God, your works are marvelous. What you've done at the cross is marvelous, God. What you've done in the sending of your spirit to indwell and abide within is marvelous, God. What you're doing to multiply churches is marvelous. God, your works are wonderful and they are marvelous to me. And then you begin to say things like, God, you are great and greatly to be praised and feared above all gods. God, you are the only God and every other idol that people flee to and cling to and trust in is worthless because you and you alone, God, are satisfying. And you begin to say, God, you are, you are, you are even in the midst of dry and weary places. In fact, that vision of God will be the only thing that sustains you in the midst of the desert, in the midst of disloyalty, in the midst of deep emotional hemorrhaging. Do you have an appetite for God? Do you desire him for who he is and not just what he gives? But then third, Another evidence of a real relationship with the living God is this. And this one's gonna take uh, the rest of our time. It's this. It's that data about God becomes delight in God. Data about God becomes delight in God. I heard another preacher say it this way this week, is that the truth about God, the information that you receive becomes sensation for you. Information becomes sensation, data becomes delight. Look at what David says in verse two of the psalm. He says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. David says, I've, when, when, I, when I was in the temple and I was there at worship and I saw all the sacrifices being offered and I heard the scriptures being read and I sung the psalms along with the rest of the gathered community who had come to worship, that in that moment, in that moment, David says, I beheld, I looked and I beheld something. I beheld the power of God. He says, I beheld the glory of God. Now it's possible, right, when you read the rest of the Old Testament, you go, well, David actually really saw something, right? Like Moses saw the burning bush. Or like the people of Israel saw uh, as they moved from the, from the, the, the land of Egypt into the land of promise and they saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Or like Isaiah saw whenever he says he had a vision, he saw God seated upon the throne, the train of his robe filling the temple. And it's possible that David really visually saw something that light passed through his lenses, landed on his retinas, produced Im- an image there that he saw. Or, and what I think David is saying is this, is that what I experienced whenever I was in the temple, whenever I was under the reading of the scriptures and in worship and I saw the sacrifices being presented, what I saw 
was so real and so vivid to me. I experienced the power of God and the presence of God and the glory of God to such a degree that the only way I know how to describe it is with sensory language, that I saw it, that I tasted it, that I touched it, that I heard it. You find that kind of language all across the Bible. Whenever, and elsewhere in Psalm 34, we're, in, we're, we're admonished to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. It doesn't say cognitively explain how God is good in all of these. It says taste him in the midst of those encounters and those experiences and those situations and circumstances of life. Taste and see. There's sensory language used all throughout the Bible to describe real, genuine relationship with the living God. And I think that's what David is doing. The only way he can describe what he experienced is to use language that's common to him and everyone else. I saw his power and I saw his glory. Listen, what happened for David in that moment is that data about God became for him delight in God. He got a sense of God on his heart. He got a sense of God on his mind, on his conscience, on his very soul. David experienced God in a way in that moment that the only way he could describe it was with sensory language. Now listen, let me just say this to you. You can, you, you, you can have a plate of food in front of you all of your life, right? You can show up to the table every day and your mom or your dad or, 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 or your spouse has prepared this wonderful meal and it's sitting before you and you got, right, you got some protein, you got some carbohydrates but not too many because you're trying to watch your figure because it's summer. Right, you got all this, right, you got a little bit of dessert and you got right, some, some tea over here and you got all the just wonderful meals sitting right before you and you can look at that meal and you can say, that is a, a, that, that is a, a, a great looking meal. That's a good meal. Right? It's got all the essential food groups. It's sitting right there. And you can study and you can analyze that meal and you can talk about that meal. You can call the people over and say, hey, look at that meal. Right? Look at that thing. Look, it's, it's so perfectly balanced. The garnish is on the plate just right. Right? The utensils are set out good. You got a spoon. You got a fork. You got a salad fork. You got a knife. They're all laid out perfectly. All the presentation is there. And you can look at that meal and analyze that meal, but it's not the same as tasting it. It is not the same. For instance, I did a little research this week, right? Did you know that you could study honey, right? You could study honey. You could study all the components and ingredients of honey, all the chemical compounds that consist in honey. You can know how the bees make it. You can know how the keepers harvest it. You can know how it gets bottled. You can know how it gets shipped. You can know some things about honey, right? You can know this about honey. You can know that honey is composed of carbohydrates like fructose, glucose, sucrose, maltose, isomaltose, maltulose, and others that I just gave up on pronouncing their names. You can know that in honey there are enzymes and amino acids like invertase, amylase, and catalase. You can know there are vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants like riboflavin, niacin, folic acid, pantothenic acid, B6, absorbic acid, calcium, iron, zinc, potassium, phosphorus, magnesium, selenium, chromium, manganese, and some other one that I'm not going to even try. You can know that all these things, honey consists of all these things, but it is not the same as a drop of honey touching your tongue and going, that is sweet. That is sweet. And when the psalmist says, 
In Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. He's not describing the chemical compounds. He's saying, that is good. That is good. See, those who have real relationship with the living God, all that data about God God doesn't remain an object to be studied, but he becomes a person to be known and experienced and encountered and walked with so that it tastes and you see power and glory showing up and it wows you and it fills you and it satisfies. That is what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of a relationship with the living God. Now, it's hard to describe that to someone. Right? It's so hard to describe it that Jonathan Edwards, one of the old Puritan uh, preachers in uh, America's history, used to describe it this way. He said, it's like trying to describe the difference between the color blue and the color red to a man who was born without sight. How do you describe blue and red? Well, it's kind no, it's not like that. Well, it's kind no. If somebody had seen it, you can kind of describe it, but if no one had ever seen it, they have no clue what you're talking about. It's also like trying to describe the difference between Mozart and Metallica, right? And John Michael Montgomery and Michael Jackson, right? All these genres of music and artists describe the difference between those to someone who was born deaf and has never heard a sound in their life or describe the difference between what tastes salty and sweet and savory and spicy and bitter and tart to someone without taste buds. You, you, you can't do it. You can't describe it. But to someone who has tasted, someone who has seen, someone who has heard, they know exactly what I'm speaking of right now. They know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and, because I just, and, and even though I said I'm not gonna, it's hard to describe, I'm gonna try to describe it to you, here, so here we go. It's like this, right? Last fall, I was in a, a wilderness season. I was, it was hot, it was dry, it was barren in my life. I was walking through really difficult times. And I remember one day opening the Bible and I remember reading out of the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37, whenever Ezekiel has this vision, God takes him out into the valley. He says, look out over the valley, Ezekiel, and I want you to see something. What I want you to see, Ezekiel, is this valley is filled with dry bones. Not just dry bones, but bleached, sun-starched bones that are so brittle because they've been sitting out for years and years and years that all the flesh, any remnant of life has evaporated off of them. Ezekiel, look at those bones, consider those bones. And then he asks him a question, Ezekiel, can those, can those bones, though, can those bones, can they live? And Ezekiel says, God, you know. And when I read those two little words, you know, they became radioactive. It's like they began to glow on the page, right? I don't know how else to describe it to you other than sensory experience, right? They began to glow on the page. And my heart began to be filled with this, this joy and warmth. As I, as I looked at the reality of the situation that I was in and beheld the power of God and going, God, like Ezekiel, God, I don't know if you will. I know you can, but I don't know if you will. God, I trust that to you. I trust it to you. Or it's like walking through a stormy season of life. Some of you have been there, been encountering just massive storms in life. 
And you open up to the book of Romans in chapter eight and you begin to read what Paul says about neither death nor life nor nakedness nor peril nor sword nor persecution nor any other thing being able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But before he says that, he says this. What shall we say to these things? To all our difficulties and trials, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And whenever you read that verse, it's like it lifts off the page and it begins to seep into your soul. And as you, as you, as you think about it, here's what happens. It's like the captain of the sea speaks to the raging waves in your heart and says, peace be still. And contrary to all reason, all of a sudden, this peace just showers over you. And you taste and you see. Or it's like those who have, have real relationship with God, what, what happens is that, that, that they just get giddy about the gospel, right? Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Then it never gets old to them, right? Like, like a little child on Christmas, right? Christmas Day, or they wake up that morning, they get gifts, and they're playing with those gifts, and they're enjoying those gifts, and they're just loving those gifts, and like there's an anticipation about what they're gonna receive, and then they open the things, and it's just like amazing, and so they're just filled with joy. But unlike the child on Christmas Day, it lasts more than a week. <laughs> because they never get over the God of the universe rescuing them from Satan, sin, and death. And they never get tired of hearing someone tell them that you are not saved because of anything that you've done but everything that God has done. They never get tired of hearing about justification by faith. And they never get tired of talking about it. They never get tired of discussing it. They never get tired of getting around other people who love it because they just always have this little giddiness about it. Now listen, I want you to know that if you're in the room this morning and you're going, I have no clue what you're talking about. I have no clue. You may be a good, upstanding, moral, church-going individual, but you do not have a relationship with the living God. If you're in the room this morning and you're a, just a, a, a normal Christian, right? You're not a monk out somewhere in a monastery who's just doing praying and chanting all day long. Here's a normal Christian living a life, working a job, raising kids, caring for your family, cutting the grass, all those other responsibilities that you have. Here's what you're thinking right now. I've tasted it. I've seen it. And it, it may have been a long time ago. And it may be very little of it. But you know what you feel right now? There's an awakening in your heart because you want more of it. It's awakening that appetite for God in you. But if you have no clue, have never tasted and seen that he is good, you've never seen, you never, you, you've always just, God has always been an object to be studied but never a person to be known. You don't have a relationship with God. You're outside of a covenant relationship with him. You, unlike David, cannot say, oh God, my God. My God. And here's the discipline that comes out of that. And, and I, there's no way I'm gonna finish. So I'm just gonna give it to you quick and we may revisit it later. But here it is. Here it is. That whenever data about God begins to turn to delight in God, here's what happens. 
is you begin to inhale reality and exhale theology. You inhale reality and exhale theology. Look at what David does in the text. In verse eight, he says, I will meditate on you through the watches of the night. You know what the night watches were in David's day? They were those periods from sunset to sunrise in which they were most vulnerable, in which the enemies could make the greatest advancement, in which they were most at threat and were at threat of the greatest harm. And so they would position guards whose eyes were peeled on the horizon looking for any kind of movement, any kind of threat approaching, and what they would do is trigger an alarm. And David doesn't say, right? He doesn't say, listen, my head is buried in the sand. I am unaware of what's going on around me. It's just me and Jesus. Everything is great. I am glorious. How you doing, right? Blessed and highly favored. Like, that's where I'm at right now, you know? That's not what he's saying. His head is not in the sand. He doesn't have on rose-colored glasses, and he's not living in denial because that is not Christianity, He's still, still deeply inhaling reality. His eyes are still fixed on the horizon, but you know where his mind is fixed? Upon God. He's inhaling reality and exhaling theology. And that's what the Psalms are. So often. What difference for you in your life would it make if in the midst of inhaling the hot, dry, desert air of reality that you experience oftentimes in your life, you begin to exhale theology. Not folk theology, like God helps those who help themselves, right? So I gotta just get it done. <laughs> not, not cliches, like I just gotta let go and let God, right? Or really dangerous stuff, like I just gotta follow my heart. Like who thinks it's wise to follow their heart when their heart is in the midst of emotional hemorrhaging? But what if you begin to exhale things like Psalm 62, where we find these words. In Psalm 62, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. What if you exhaled that in the midst of changing schools, graduating and going to college, losing a job? What if you exhaled that as you were experiencing the crushing loneliness of friendlessness or companionlessness or of challenges with health in your own life or in the lives of those that you love and care for? What if you just exhaled? God is a fortress, God is a rock, God is my shield, God is my salvation. This theology just began to exhale because you were delighting in it. It wasn't just data to be studied, but it was bringing joy to your very soul. That's relationship with the living God. Do you have it? Is there an appetite for him? Do you desire him for who he is, not just what he gives? And is he more than an object to be studied, but a person to be loved and rejoiced over? Does does data become the delight in your life? If not, I want you to know, Brian's gonna come and lead us in a song as we close. I'm gonna be out here after the service in room five. I would love to visit with you about that. If you're here this morning, you're going, I have never experienced any of that. I would love to visit with you about it this morning as you you leave. I wanna pray for us you this morning as we close and sing together. Let's pray.
Father, we come today thanking you that we are able to know you, that we're able to have real relationship with you, not just know some facts about you, God, but we're able to taste you, we're able to encounter you, and the only way we can describe it, God, is with language of our senses, that we see and that we hear and that we taste and that we sense. And God, I pray this morning for those in the room who have never, have no idea what I'm talking about. God, I pray that today they would. God, I pray that you would be gracious to save. I pray that you would show yourself mighty in their life. And God, whether it be through this sermon or whether it be through other things that they might read or encounter, God, that as they read your word, as they sit under teaching of your word, as they discuss it with others, God, that you would just begin to turn lights on for them, God. It would begin to glow, it would begin to radiate, God, they would begin to experience joy. And there would be an appetite for you. And they would pray prayers, God, declaring your greatness and praise and adoring you. And God, for those who have tasted it, but it's been a long time and very little, God, I pray like kids, as your children, God, even as our kids come to us looking for those gifts that we know, they know we have for them. And they continue to ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask until they receive it. God, may we do the same. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.